What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 30, Smooth Sailing on the Red Sea. The year was approximately 2009 BCE, and the great ruler Montuhotep II was dead. After reuniting the two lands, this legendary king had finally passed into the field of reeds and become Osiris. It fell to his son, already a grown man, to lead the country and uphold the legacy of the re-established divine kingship. Over a short but accomplished reign, this king would enrich the legacy of his household by commissioning temples and, for the first time in nearly 200 years, successfully sending an Egyptian expedition to Punt. Montuhotep III should be known primarily by his throne name, Sankh-Ka-Re, which translates causing the Ka of Re to live. Sankh-Ka-Re Montuhotep Sankh-Tawi-F, to give him his full name, would rule for a good 12 years. This was a short but respectable length of time given the average lifespan of ancient humans. And Montuhotep III used that period to accomplish several noteworthy things. A magnificent program of monumental construction was initiated up and down the Nile Valley expanding and decorating cult centres in several communities such as Abydos, Elephantine, and Armant, where a large temple to the war god Montu was enriched with new decorations of the king. The temples themselves were not grandiose monuments, but respectable constructions nonetheless. Elegant decorations show sophisticated and expert carving some of the more beautiful work of the 11th dynasty. They suggest a great deal of royal investment in artistic workshops, which improved the overall quality of artwork being produced during this time period. Likewise, the elaborate contributions at a community called El Todd show signs of the great veneration given to Montu in this period. The king appears before Montu, receiving the blessing of the war god in his new office as king of the two lands. In this respect, we may view Montuhotep III as ordained by the god, empowered by him to rule over the Nile Valley. It was a conscious repetition of Montuhotep II's general favour for this god, and reflects the Theban obsession with Montu as an element of their legitimization. But Montu could only take them so far. The kingdom was now at peace. And although Sankh-Kare commissioned several forts in the eastern delta to protect against nomadic raids, his reign was a peaceful one. For this king, greater glory and wealth was to be found elsewhere than in conquest. It was for this reason that in 2001 BCE, the king launched an expedition to Punt. On the 4th of September in the year 2001, 
the steward of the king's palace, chief of the six courts of justice, and royal companion named Henenu, was dispatched by Sankare to undertake a journey to the Red Sea coast. It is a rare moment in this podcast that I am able to give you a firm date for an event, and we are only able to reconstruct this particular moment with some certainty, thanks to a variety of documentary sources. You see, Greco-Roman writers such as Pliny the Elder and the anonymous author of a text called the Periplus Maris Erythraeae tell us that the best time to sail south on the Red Sea is between June and September. Even more specifically, Hinenu himself recorded the date, saying that the king dispatched him on the third day of the first month of Shemu. Shemu, the harvest season, corresponds with early September, suggesting that the date itself was the 4th or 5th of September, 2001 BCE, which was the 8th year of Sankare's reign. This was the harvest season in Egypt, just as the Nile waters were rising through Sudan and Upper Egypt. Once the crops were collected, it seems the king wasted no time in dispatching his steward to the east. If the Egyptians were to catch the southern currents on their journey to Punt, and then get the northern currents on their way home, time was of the essence. It was a significant undertaking, and in a rock inscription carved towards the end of the journey, Hinenu recounted its beginning thus, Year 8, the first month of the third season, Day 3, the wearer of the royal seal, to whom the two lands come bowing down, the sole companion, the steward, Hinenu, says, My lord sent me to dispatch a ship to Punt, to bring for him fresh myrrh from the chieftains over the red land, or desert, by reason of the fear of him in the highlands. I went forth from Koptos upon the road, which his majesty commanded me. There was an army with me of the south. Those who were in town and field, united, came after me. The army cleared the way before, overthrowing those hostile to the king. The hunters and the children of the highlands were posted as the protection of my limbs. Every official body of his majesty was placed under my authority. They reported messengers to me, as one alone commanding, to whom many hearken. End quote. Thanks to the steward, we understand the military protections which attended this expedition. Troops from the king's army went ahead to clear away nomadic warriors and Bedouin tribes that live in the eastern desert, and posed a threat to Egyptian trading. The trek was long and dangerous moving through nearly 200 kilometres, or 120 miles, of desert sand and rock. This was a seven-day one-way trip at least, and the Egyptians were moving through far more rugged territory than the famous Roman legion, capable of 20 miles a day on a good road. For the ancients, the journey was hot, rugged, and plagued by nomadic tribes. It was arduous and dangerous, but at the end of it lay the Red Sea, the access way to the untold riches of the south. Status and wealth were to be found in a royal expedition, and if Henenu could successfully manage the affair, he was well placed to improve his standing in the eyes of gods and king. The Egyptians accessed the Red Sea through a small number of harbour settlements scattered along the coast. 
These harbours had existed since the Old Kingdom, with recent discoveries in the Wadi al-Jaf revealing the operations and eventual closure of a harbour facility during the period of Khufu and Khafre. For Hanenu, accessing such harbours was of the highest priority. But he was in charge of a large number of workers, and these needed to be cared for. He made provisions for the troops, arming each with water and carrying equipment. Quote, I went forth with an army of 3,000 men. I made the road into a river, and the red land a stretch of field. For I gave a leathern bottle, a carrying pole, two jars of water, and twenty loaves to each one among them every day. The donkeys were laden with sandals. End quote. Such preparations were admirable, but could only go so far. Water would run out, sandals would break, and even the sturdiest carrying equipment can only go so far if you are weak with hunger and thirst. Henenu's solution was an admirable one, with far-reaching benefits. He enacted a program of well digging along the desert route, preparing way stations for workers and those who came after him. In this way, future expeditions could be provisioned more easily, and trips out to the coast would be faster and less hazardous. Quote, now I made twelve wells in the bush, and two wells in Edehet, twenty square cubits in one, and thirty square cubits in the other. I made another in Hihetep, twenty by twenty cubits on each side. End quote. All in all, Henenu and his troops dug fifteen new wells along the route, an incredibly valuable resource in this desert environment. If nothing else, the effort alone would have justified the expedition, which had secured the route to the Red Sea. The fact that the troops would then journey on to Punt was just another layer to the overall productiveness of Sankare's foreign policy. It was a risky but potentially lucrative trip down to either Ethiopia or Yemen. You may remember from episode 11, when Sahure of Dynasty V commissioned a royal fleet, that scholars to this day are uncertain on the exact location of Punt, on the basis of the products they received, and the descriptions of the region left by the Egyptians. Most modern Egyptologists think Punt was located in Ethiopia, maybe Somalia, that general area. But others suggest that it was on the southern tip of the Arabic peninsula. Well, there is no overall consensus, unfortunately. Ethiopia does seem like a fairly solid bet. But it's also possible that the region was not clearly defined in a geographic sense. The Egyptians may have treated it as a proverbial land of mystery and exotic items, without taking particular care to determine its exact boundaries. Until Egyptian inscriptions are discovered in Ethiopia or Yemen, we will never know for certain. But the general references to Punt, and to the more generic God's Land, suggest that areas which produced luxury items were treated as something like a mysterious other area. Rather than define a land specifically, they simply thought of all these areas as belonging to a general space protected by the gods. What is certain is that Henenu's expeditionary sailors 
were on their way to a land rich in valuable goods like incense trees and myrrh. Next to this, the Egyptians also acquired a product known today as gum arabic, which is derived from the acacia trees which grow throughout southern Arabia and sub-Saharan Africa. By drawing the sap from the acacia tree, the ancients could produce a variety of items useful in cosmetics and painting. Gum arabic dissolves in water and can be used to thin out watercolour paint. You can even eat it. M&Ms contain gum arabic, as does Coca-Cola and many soft drinks. The ingredient can be found in postage stamps, pharmaceutical drugs, and in earlier times as an ingredient for aging wine. Gum arabic is incredibly versatile. Naturally, the Egyptians wanted as much of it as possible. Interestingly, nearly 50% of the world's supply of gum arabic still comes from Sudan and South Sudan. Today, the Sudanese governments run a system of planting for acacia trees in order to protect the supply of gum arabic and the steady income it provides for rural communities. So the next time you buy a bottle of soft drink, remember that you are drawing on an ingredient and product that has been in use for over 4,000 years. But now that I've had my brief geek out about gum arabic, let's get back to Hunenu, who in early September 2009 BCE was marching through the Red Land, the eastern desert of Egypt between the Nile Valley and Red Sea coast. The expedition arrived at the Red Sea near a site known today as the Mersa Gawasis. The Mersa Gawasis and the Wadi which connects to it are fascinating areas, rich in archaeological material and historical references. The site was used from the Middle Kingdom right up to the late period, when King Samtik II's servants left a testament to royal activity in the region. In later centuries, the Romans established a guard post nearby to protect the routes from unexpected raids, or to provide proper oversight for any trade being conducted in this region. As a staging point for trips on the Red Sea, the Mersa Goasis has the advantage of being far enough from Sinai that it is protected from Bedouin raids and foreign attack, but close enough to the Nile Valley that expeditions can be made with minimal danger. As a result of these natural advantages, the site preserves wonderful historical remains, including the ancient wood and papyrus rope with which expeditionary ships were constructed. Limestone anchors have been found in the region since the 1970s and provide testament to the Egyptians building ships large enough to require deep water anchors of very heavy material. Egyptian archaeologist Catherine Bard and her colleagues have excavated in this area since the early 1990s and uncovered many of these materials that testify to Egyptian shipbuilding. It seems that the ancients did not have a fleet permanently docked in the Red Sea harbours. Instead, they gathered the necessary materials for ship construction in the Nile Valley and then carried them through the desert to the harbours. Once there, they would assemble the ships on site quarrying limestone for new anchors, and then launch on their voyage. It was a useful strategy, all things considered. For one thing, 
it removed the need to leave soldiers as a permanent guard for ships. It also meant that the Egyptians did not need to police the region regularly, merely sending out expeditions with enough support to ensure that any local tribe was either scared away or killed before they could cause trouble. Henenu seems to have favoured a heavy advance guard of soldiers, if his rock inscription is any valid indication. Egyptian troops scouted ahead of the expeditionary workers, clearing the roads and desert of nomadic tribes, and putting the fear of the king into those who would target unprotected travellers. Once he arrived, the construction of ships proceeded swiftly, and the boats were launched with ease from the natural harbour of the Mersa Goasis. Henenu himself did not board the ships, preferring to let others handle this element of the expedition, while he took workers to local quarries. Here, Henenu would carve and chisel blocks for the construction of monuments in the Nile Valley, adding valuable building materials to the luxury goods which were even now being acquired in Punt. Overall, we know very little about this particular expedition. The fleets of Sahure and Hatshepsut are far more impressively attested, leaving us vivid records of the process and events. This is an unfortunate side effect of Hanenu's decision, or instructions, to remain in Egypt while the fleet went south. He gives us the details of what he did, but leaves out any direct discussion of his sailors' experiences. It's frustrating, but I promise you that one day I will be able to tell you all about the land of Punt from a direct Egyptian source. Anyways, the expedition returned after some weeks, and began its trip back to the Nile Valley. Henenu recorded it thusly, quote, Now, after my return from the Red Sea, I executed the command of his majesty, and I brought for him all the gifts which I had found in the region of the God's Land. I returned through the valley of Hamamat. I brought for him august blocks for statues belonging to the temple. Never was brought the like for the king's court. Never was done the like by any king's companion, sent out since the time of the gods. I did this for the majesty of my lord, because he so much loved me. End quote. Travelling through the Wadi Hamamat, which is near to Mersa Gawasis, the soldiers, sailors, and labourers carried their traded items, the disassembled pieces of the sea-going ships, enough provisions to last them a week's journey, and simultaneously hauled stone blocks through the old riverbeds. I can only imagine these men were exhausted by the end. It's a workload even the Roman legion, famous for its endurance, would have been hard-pressed to achieve in such heat as you find in the eastern desert. But achieve it they did, and Henenu returned to his king early in the ninth year of Sankare's reign. The king must have been overjoyed at the successful expedition. Not only was his household enriched, and valuable building materials provided for his temple program, it also ensured his legacy among the rulers of his household. Henenu himself, unfortunately, disappears from the historical record after this expedition. His tomb is yet to be discovered, 
although it likely will be found in Thebes, or that general facility. The steward's record in the Wadi Hamamat is his only testament. But what a splendid testament it is. Without Henenu, very little would be known of Sankare's reign. The king himself is simply not well attested beyond his work. The temples he commissioned seem to have been lovely, but they have not survived the ages in the way other works of the period have done. That being said, the king was the recipient of a small cult at the northern delta site of El Katana, perhaps in recognition of his efforts to defend the region by commissioning fortresses, the locals venerated Sankare in small chapels at the site. Interestingly, the cult developed and existed in parallel with that of a ruler named Keti III, a member of the Heracleopolitan dynasty that was defeated by Montuhotep II. A strange twist of fate, one that suggests the rural communities did not view the house of Keti in the same way as the kings of the 11th dynasty did. When concerns of royal power and legitimacy were irrelevant, the people simply carried on in the way they always had. The result was a community worshipping two kings, of opposing houses, many years after the end of the civil war. Although Montuhotep II would always overshadow his son, Sankare could be pleased with the service provided by his subjects, and be confident that he would be remembered fondly in the coming generations. This, sadly, was not a fate shared by his successor, Nebtawi Rei Montuhotep IV, who would disappear from the royal annals some time after his seven-year reign.